Dr. R.J. Rushduni, RR161CA143, Federal Lands Privatized, from the Easy Chair, Excellent Colloquies on Various Subjects. This is Easy Chair, number 253, November the 5th, 1991. This evening, I, R.J. Rushduni, Otto Scott, and Douglas Murray will be discussing a subject that I think is going to be increasingly important in the years to come. I neglected to bring with me a letter uh, from one of you with regard to a new foundation that is being set up, namely one calling for the privatization of federal lands. Now, this seems like a strange cause in this day when the federal possession in some uh, states in the West is as high as 90%. And, of course, we have the environmentalists demanding that more and more land be taken from the public and being given to uh, some state or federal agency, in particular federal agencies. Within the past couple of months, I've read of two or three animals that are supposedly uh, endangered and should be put on the endangered species uh, list here in our part of California. One is a kit fox, which uh, is certainly not limited to the area of Stockton, where the city was planning to expand, but is fairly common. Some of the animals they want to preserve are not even desirable, but lands are being set aside for their preservation. Now, there is a legal basis for the privatization of federal lands. It is a constitution. Very few people know much about the constitution because in uh, the required courses that uh, one takes in high school and at the university level, the kind of questions asked are technical ones. The term length for senators, the term length for president and for vice president and for congressmen, and uh, the powers of Congress in a general way. But in Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution, we read, The Congress shall have power to exercise exclusive legislation in all cases whatsoever over such district, not exceeding 10 miles square, as may by session of particular states and the acceptance of Congress become the seat of the government of 
the United States. Now that has reference, of course, to the formation subsequently of the District of Columbia. And then it goes on, and to exercise like authority over all places purchased by the consent of the legislature of the state in which the same shall be for the erection of forts, magazines, arsenals, dockyards, and other needful buildings. In other words, this is a limitation on what land and properties the federal government can own in states. Apart from the post offices, there are forts, magazines, arsenals, dockyards, and other needful buildings. Nothing about vast areas of land. Now, turning to a manual published in 1860, A History and Analysis of the Constitution of the United States by Nathaniel C. Tal, T-O-W-L-E. In its legal commentary on uh, that particular article, and I won't take time to quote the uh, sources uh, from various uh, legal decisions. The right of exclusive legislation carries with it the right of exclusive jurisdiction. But the purchase of the lands by the United States for the public purposes within the limits of a state does not of itself oust the jurisdiction or sovereignty of such state over the lands so purchased. The Constitution, this is another decision, prescribes the only mode by which they can acquire land as a sovereign power, and therefore they hold only as an individual when they obtain it in any other manner. In other words, for a good many years in this country's history, the power of the federal government to own land within the states was severely limited. And very few people are aware that that's a part of the Constitution. Here in California, within my lifetime, there was talk about the state in terms of these things that I just read, taxing all federal properties within the state of California. So uh, we have a great deal of constitutional background for uh, the privatization of federal lands within the states. Douglas, would you like to comment on the subject? Well, I'm sure Otto will be able to shine more light on the historical aspect, but what this brings to mind is this Wilderness Preservation Act, which has now run amok, and it's been... uh, uh, guided and uh, and uh, sanctified by the activist courts, successive activist courts that we've had. In, in effect, uh, they have amended the Constitution without a vote of the states or the people. Well, the, there is something about toll roads, I believe, in the Constitution also. 
the post roads. Post roads, yes, post roads. And that, I suppose, was to facilitate the mails and things yes. of that sort, and the army, the movement of the army, and so on. Well, right now, to begin with, the uh, where we are, where we are, we're uh, being managed or governed, I guess is a better word, by the agencies. The agencies that Congress has created, which are called the fourth branch of government. And they cover every sector, agriculture, manufacturing, uh, the land, and so forth. Now, the Environmental Act has been an end run around the control of all land, whether it's private or public. Uh, your land is as much under the control now of the federal government as a federal designated land, because if there's an endangered species there, uh, you can be held liable and criminally liable beginning November the 1st. Beginning November the 1st, the uh, United States Sentencing Agency has laid out a list of criminal penalties for violations of, of the environmental regulations. They don't call them laws, they call them regulations. And that means that, for instance, if you're down in San Bernardino County and you happen to have the misfortune to run over a kangaroo rat, you can be fined up to $50,000 and given prison time. So really, uh, we're talking here, uh, when we talk about the Constitution, we're, we're not really talking about a living document. We're talking about an end run that has been made around the Constitution by Congress when it set up these agencies. And the agencies emit regulations. And these uh, regulations are what govern us, not the common law. The common law is like the common law of England under Charles I. It's been set aside. Or under, let's say, Elizabeth or James when the High Commission was governing. <clears throat> we, have, uh, we have very little control. We can't uh, chop a tree. We can't add a building. We can't add a room to the house. Uh, we can't build a new house without special permission. All this is the use of land. Well, it's becoming more dictatorial before agencies like Fish and Game or any other uh, public agency, they would conduct public hearings and they would get input from the entire spectrum of interested parties. They no longer do that. They promulgate regulations and they tell you this is what it's going to be. I'm going to refer now to a book by Ruxford G. Tubwell. Oh, good for you. Yes. Now... Brain truster. Yes. Originally a professor of economics, then a part of Roosevelt's Brain Trust, governor of Puerto Rico, director of the Institute of Planning at the uh, University of Chicago, and then a senior fellow at the Center for the Study of Democratic Institutions. So he's been one of the planners whose influence uh, has never been fully documented on the molding of what we have today. And some 20 years ago, he wrote The Compromising of the Constitution, Early Departures. 
and he documented what I pointed out earlier, although not dealing in particular with the issue I did. And he says, and I quote, as a result of changed circumstances and their interpretation of need, the Supreme Court has added several rights to the original ten. These are association, movement, privacy, voting, and perhaps education. When the Constitution is altered in this way, the effect is quite different from forthright amendment, unquote. So what Tugwell was calling for was, uh, since the Constitution was very early bypassed, it doesn't mean much anymore, so we should discard it and start all over again with a new constitution that will uh, give shape and authority to federal power and all these new rights that uh, have been uh, established by the Supreme Court. So uh, Tugwell was right in this regard. The original Constitution has long been a dead letter. The courts have used the words as a pretext to introduce things never even remotely imagined by any of the founding fathers. And with the increasing control of uh, everyone's property and the extension of federally owned lands in all the states. Uh, in effect, we are going back to something that this country revolted against. The development, and Otto referred to it in England, took step by step over the generations and it culminated with the Tudors and Stuarts. All power from the people invested it in the throne so that the old and original allodial rights of people to property, whereby a man had sole ownership of what he owned, and the man who is, by the way, doing a remarkable studies in this area together with another man, a lawyer, is John Saunders with Jim Griffith, the attorney. Uh, I called attention to the early medieval alloads and uh, to the biblical background whereby the earth could not be taxed because it is the Lord's, and how it was only gradually that the taxation of land came into this country, primarily through the Unitarians, who were for state power. But the old premise that a man's home was his castle went hand in hand with something last used by a demagogue in our time, Otto, uh, Huey Long, every man a king. But that had deep medieval premises. If your property could not 
be taxed. And if no man could enter upon it without your consent, then you were king over that little domain that was yours. And that was a part of American law. And it has disappeared, although it's still there, uh, John and Jim tell me, in the common law. So we have had a moral and a legal revolution which has taken away from us our control of our properties and the states, their ability to control things within their boundaries. Well, I've just finished writing an article for a group called the National Public Policy Group mm -hmm. in Washington, D.C. on this issue. Not land specifically, but it's titled Congress and the Constitution. And the revolution uh, to which you refer really began here in 1865 with the 39th Congress, which was the abolitionist Congress, which wanted to punish the South and uh, succeeded in doing so and also ran roughshod over Andrew Johnson in the process. Yes. Uh, the 40th Congress, the one succeeding that in 1869, forced a packed the court in order to make the legal tender law legal because the court had earlier ruled it unconstitutional. And after that, there's been a series, step by step, for a while, of course, they're under a strong president. The executive has been stronger. But that's been fairly rare. I mean, we had uh, Theodore Roosevelt to some extent, Wilson to a greater extent, Roosevelt to the greatest extent. Most of the presidents, however, have been weak men. Uh, it's almost as though weakness is one of the qualifications to become a president because otherwise the party bosses don't want you. And setting up the agencies, the agencies of, of administrative law, you remember you gave me that book by Berman on administrative law. And the biggest leap forward in the growth of agencies in administrative law was under Lyndon Johnson mm -hmm. in the 60s. While all the riots and civil rights brouhaha was going on, the administrative center of the government and the bureaucracy was enlarged at an exponential degree to the point where the central government as such, and I include the court, cannot contend with the bureaucracy. Congress is trying to. It reorganized itself into committees and subcommittees and each one of them is trying to ride herd on a certain number of agencies. If you get in trouble with one of the agencies and you go to your congressman, and that's, that's his big thing. Now, he can deal with the agency that he's in charge of, so to speak. He's in a wonderful position. Having created the agency in the first place, and the agency needs Congress in order to get the budget to continue, he has great control on that end, and then he has control over the constituent because the constituent is in a problem that Congress created for him. So he gets it both ways. Once, once in a while they go over too far, like with the uh, savings and loan people with Keating. The uh, intervention became a little bit 
uh, too involved with self-interest and with money. But if they hadn't asked for money, the Keating Five couldn't be touched because they had a perfect right as a congressman to intervene. That, incidentally, is a new law because 20 years or so ago, 30 years or so ago, they could go to prison for intervening. But they passed a law, of course, making it possible. So really what we're talking about is not land alone, but the entire American government, which is being governed now, you might say, with big brother system without big brother. You've got multiple power centers. I mean, each one of these congressmen is really a king over yes. a very large... He's a baron of something or another. Exactly. Yes, and the idea behind early American law, which appears even in Chancellor Kent's commentaries on the Constitution in the first half of the last century, was that every man was lord over his domain, his property. And this is an ancient idea in Christendom, so much so that our word baron uh, is a very familiar word to me because it is uh, in Armenian. It was a word common to Europe and common to Christendom. If you were a free man, you were a baron. If you were a property holder, baron. And to this day, uh, instead of something like Mr., the Armenians would say Baron. He would be Baron Otto Scott, Baron Douglas Murray. That preserved itself. I've asked my grandfather Scott once if there wasn't a title in the family. He said, yes. I said, what? He said, free man. Yes. And that's what that one It was meant. a title. Yes. Well, Sir Edward Cook was the one who told uh, James I that every man's house is his castle. Now, Cook had a way of inventing law, but he was so learned that nobody could catch him at it. <laughs> and I don't know whether he invented that saying or whether it was true, but in practical, practical sense, it was true. It had its roots in the alloys. So it had deep medieval roots. It was something that was deep within Christendom against which local lords and kings had been fighting through the medieval era. Well, that was the whole point and purpose of the aristocracy was to protect the people from the central power, from the king. Centralized power. Hamilton warned against it. Jefferson warned against it. Madison warned against it. These were men who had set up a war against the commons, mm -hmm. against the English Parliament, not against the king. The king didn't have any power. Parliament had taken it away. The Declaration of Independence was addressed to the king because they had to personify the war. It was. It was a. Adams called it a wartime document. He said there were a number of declarations. And he said, I had a hand in some of them, and I don't know why Mr. Jefferson got so much credit for his. <laughs> well, uh, an interesting aspect of that is the uh, 
the United States was never under a parliament. It was under the king. So King George III was king of England, Scotland, Ireland, New York, Virginia, the Massachusetts. Yes. Each was a little kingdom and uh, only in foreign affairs did the king govern them through parliament. So when parliament attempted to legislate for the colonies, that was a revolutionary act. The revolution started in parliament. And so the uh, references, I believe there are two oblique references in the Declaration of Independence to Parliament. But it was a declaration of independence from King George III for having violated the Constitution or Charter of each of the colonies by turning power over to Parliament that did not belong to Parliament. Well, I can say I'm corrected. That's a very good point. But you know that in England, Parliament took control from the Crown. Yes. And that one of the men in Parliament, one of the men in Commons said, we can do anything. We can turn a man into a woman if we want to. Yes. Of course, he didn't know that it would now be possible. <laughs> but my point really was that the leaders of the founding generation knew that Commons was uncontrollable in England. They knew that the Cromwellian Revolution had been lost to that extent, and uh, they did not want to have an uncontrolled Congress here. They didn't want to have an uncontrolled executive, and they didn't want to have an uncontrolled judiciary. Yes. So when Congress here began to expand its powers, and Congress has subjugated the Supreme Court, I think it's very interesting that it's managed to do it without having without being blamed. But the latest Civil Rights Act, for instance, is being passed to change the rulings of the Supreme Court. You know, there were about four rulings uh, in which the court said it was unconstitutional to treat people badly on grounds of discrimination, of being guilty of discrimination. So this particular Congress has decided to change those rulings by enacting new laws. In this manner, Congress has both stacked the court and has tried to dominate the court ever since 1865. It's also tried to dominate the presidency, with a few exceptions, and it's pretty well succeeded. Yes. Well, we'll see if the court rebels against this, because it's a, a very arrogant move this time. Well, now it's... So far, its rulings have been every which way. I mean, I, I don't see anything coherent coming out of it at all. But maybe with uh, Clarence Thomas on there, and certainly he, he shouldn't feel good about Congress. No, that's what I hope will be the case. Maybe that'll swing the matter. Yes. Well, the uh, power of the federal government over the states has increased to a remarkable point so that there are rebellions here and there. In two states in particular, uh, the rebellion is quite marked. Uh, in Alaska, the governor has been very open about his 
rebellion against federal controls and federal policies. Wyoming has rejected and is the only state that has maintained its opposition to the one-man-one-vote premise. What's the setup in Wyoming? Is it a bicameral or a unicameral Yes, and each county, irrespective of the number of people it has, has uh, representation in the Senate. So, uh, so it's not one man, one vote. No, emphatically not. It is also bucking the federal government, Mexico, California, and Arizona on uh, Green River water, which goes into the Colorado. So there are examples of resistance, although there are also some uh, examples of uh, surrender. January Calcedon report, I, uh, there will be an exceptionally fine article by R.E. McMaster on uh, the situation in Montana, what the environmentalists and the federal government have been doing there, and how it is destroying the future of that state. They want it to revert to wilderness. They are destroying the ranchers and farmers. They have loosed wolves, which are uh, really killing machines, as Ari points out, quoting uh, authorities on it. And grizzlies and other bears are moving out of Yellowstone and other areas all through that area. And uh, the results are devastating. Now, I know uh, years ago when I was on the Indian Reservation how deadly bears can be and how they have a lust to kill as wolves do. Uh, one sheep, for example, would make uh, a copious meal uh, for a bear for a few days. But uh, when they would come into a, a flock, they would think nothing of killing 20 and 40 at a time for the sheer pleasure of killing. They enjoyed it. They wouldn't stop to eat. They would have a bloodlust for killing. And this is not recognized. And uh, in some areas, people have already been mauled by grizzlies. In this area, the bear are moving closer and closer to our areas. A few have been sighted around Balacito and along the Six Mile Road. I was talking to a local game warden, and he says it's just a question of time before a child gets mauled by a, a mountain lion. Yes, oh, they're, they are very Because they're moving down, down the hill. They're below Highway 49. They're right over here on locally, just uh, west, of, uh, west of us a few miles. They're on our place. They're in Sacramento. They've caught them on the university campus there. They're in the backyards of, uh, of uh, Stockton. And these are the young ones, fortunately for those people, 
but uh, one person has been mauled, and the same has happened in Montana with mountain lion, lions increasing because they're protected. I was going to cite, excuse me, uh, one other uh, instance of states uh, uh, are now beginning to reject federal highway funds as a means of casting off uh, federal power over their internal uh, uh, jurisdiction. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think there are two states now that have done that, that have turned down federal highway funds. This has always been the big sort of Damocles hanging over the state's head. The federal government would tell them, if you don't do what we tell you to, we're going to cut off the federal highway funds. Or they would have legislators gang up on their state legislators and they would be denied pork barrel programs, uh, federal funds being spent within that state. And I think the states, some of the states at least are beginning to wake up that uh, if they continue to do that, they'll lose all sovereignty if they ever had any. Mm -hmm. Of course, it's also moving into a different area altogether. This animal worship. Yes. And nature worship is uh, very strange. I I read a a letter to the editor. I think it was in the Wall Street Journal. I'm not sure where. But it was so unusual that I recall it. Somebody had talked about uh, wanting to develop some area of wilderness. And there were several letters against it. And then the man came back with a defense saying that it would provide homes and jobs and schools and so forth. And one letter said the animals had in their first, the insects, even the insects, had rights that should be respected. That's the religion of the uh, Jains of India who wear a mask over their face so they won't inadvertently breathe in and kill a gnat or some other uh, little flying insect. And they are opposed to the killing of all animal life. They're very strict vegetarians. They take great precautions to kill not even an ant. Nothing. But do they fight each other? <laughs> I couldn't tell you about that, but uh, the Hindus who uh, are vegetarians uh, don't hesitate to kill each other. That's right. That's a strange set of values, isn't it? Yes, yes. Because you recall when between four and six million people were slaughtered at the division of India into Pakistan. Mm -hmm with knives, yes. not with guns. We're denying ourselves the self-preservation and guaranteeing it to other species. I wonder if that applies to germs. Should we use medicines? Well, I have heard there are people who are against the killing of germs. But they are people who believe that most of mankind should disappear so that the purity of nature should return. Well, they should lead the way. Oh, they're going to remain as the caretakers, and uh, the rest of us should die. Now, Earth First has welcomed AIDS 
because they have said that 90%, 9 out of 10 people, should die. This whole question of the value of life, value of a human being, came up, as I recall it, about 20 years or so ago, when they first began to introduce the dialysis machines and things of that sort. And, of course, they had a number of people backed up who needed to use the machine to live. So the physicians began to try to figure out whose life should take precedence. And I believe they had a cutoff age of 60. I'm not sure about the age. Anyone, you and I, uh, Rush, would be out of the running. We've finished. We've already shot our bolt and so forth. Speak for yourself. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm speaking now for the doctors. And uh, then they had, I think, educational qualifications, occupation, how useful they were to society, and so forth. Well, writers are not very useful. There's too many of them, you know. <laughs> but but uh, I haven't heard much about that recently. Well, you know that there's uh, the medical ethicists are uh, grappling with uh, what they consider to be now an overwhelming dilemma uh, with organ transplants. There has grown now to be 25,000 people in this country waiting for organ transplants. So they're in the process of uh, putting together computerized profiles uh, which will determine uh, people's uh, quality of life. We're going to have computers telling us whether or not we're going to live or die because the the people in the medical profession, they want to unload themselves of this responsibility. So how are they doing? They transfer all these qualities to a computer and then feed the computer the value? Yes, how much longer, you, what, you, what is the, uh, your, would be the rest of your normal life expectancy and all of the various other factors that they consider important as far as quality of life. And you either fit the profile or you don't. If you don't, you don't get the organ transplant, and the computer, in effect, tells you you have to die. There are some who are saying that method should be applied as euthanasia. Mm -hmm. In other words... Automatic. Mm -hmm. When a certain number of factors, like yeah. changing steel prices, used to be evaluated once. Yeah. Well, it's becoming inconvenient for the medical ethicists because they have to meet too often now. When you've got 25,000 people to worry about, they'd be in meetings all the time trying to decide who's going to go and who's going to stay. So they have to make it more efficient by using, utilizing computer profiling. I'd like to go back to uh, something with regard to the so-called public lands, the federal lands. There was a very interesting book written, oh, I think about, well, 1982. Dan Fulton was the author, Failure on the Plains, A Rancher's View of the Public Lands Problem. Uh, Dan Fulton is a Montana rancher, and he describes what is happening progressively. He also calls attention to the fact that federal reports indicate the serious mismanagement of federal lands. Mm -hmm. Not surprised. So that uh, we are 
told that the federal government should have these lands to protect them, but these are the areas that are mismanaged, not the privately owned areas. Moreover, we are given a myth, for example, as to buffalo grass, how deep it was, and it was just a few inches high. And uh, the author, Dan Fulton, uh, says that, uh, well, he cites, for example, Roosevelt's campaign when he ran for the presidency first, a promise of lower taxes and less bureaucracy. (laughs) And he said, that promise is about as good as any promise made by any president he's known from Woodrow Wilson through Roosevelt to the present. So the idea that property will be in a better condition once it is placed in federal hands is a myth. For example, right here we have a problem because of the drought and the country all above us, just a few miles. And uh, the bark beetle, because of the drought, has killed a vast number of trees. Those trees, if cut down immediately, are excellent for timber. But if they are not cut down and milled within a year, the bark beetle will destroy their validity for construction, and they'll only be good as firewood. And uh, one would think that all those trees would be cut down very quickly and sold because it would be profitable to sell them. But the red tape is such that they cannot get all of them cut and moved out within a year. And as a result, the wood is destroyed by the bark beetle. And they manage to lose money on everything that is connected with the forests, whether it's uh, green cut or dead cut, they lose money. Well, the rationale will vary for public land. The environmentalists don't want us to drill in the uh, subarctic. Now, I talked to a geologist some years ago who felt that just below the poles in the Alaska area, there's a belt that goes around the earth. And he felt that there's enough oil there underneath the permafrost to take care of the world for several hundred years. And by that time, we may have something else or whatever. But the environmentalists act as though oil is something that's manufactured in the boardroom of Exxon, they seem to think it's a strange foreign substance. I mean, they don't seem to think that it's part of the earth. It's part of the natural resources. And they argue that we shouldn't drill. We should uh, pay the Arabs for their oil instead, the Nigerians and whatnot. But I've listened to them and I've watched them long enough to realize that these are simply rationales. What they are really talking about is the power to stop you from doing something. If a person is not creative, 
if they're not able to do things on their own, produce things or whatever, then their creativity takes a perverse twist and it consists of stopping others. I've known men whose entire career is killing other people's ideas mm-hmm. inside the company. Yes. Bringing up some objection immediately when anything is proposed, they think of an objection to it. I was a lawyer. Well, they, they, they come in all forms. Well, Antarctica is a continent under the ice. It is probably one of the richest areas of the world in natural resources. The Soviet Union has been at work there in hush-hush ways that we absolutely will not criticize. And what we have been in process of doing by negotiation is to internationalize Antarctica and to bar any exploration there. It's going to be a great white park. Yes. But we're not going to interfere with the Soviet Union in what it may do, nor are we going to trespass over areas which they increasingly are saying are off limits to the rest of us. So mm-hmm. it's a very, very uh, weird situation. We've been afraid of the Soviets ever since 1945. Mm-hmm. Deathly afraid. Yes. The whole United States has been in a funk about the Soviets, and I don't know why, because they're not even big men. Most of them are short. Mm-hmm. They're not ten feet tall. And of course, even now, we are unilaterally disarming mm-hmm. in the expectation that if we strip ourselves, they'll do the same. Well... I think it is an encouraging fact that there is someone on our mailing list who is setting up a foundation for the privatization of federal lands in the Washington, D.C. area. Well, has anyone ever taken these issues? The courts will not accept these issues if you go to to the courts with them, you know. The court has surrendered a long time ago on all these sensitive matters. Congress in recent years has dumped certain problems out of the courts for the courts to legislate because congressmen don't want to take the chance and the justices are sitting there for life. Well, the federal government has been controlling the states and expanding its power within the states because of its vast taxing program and handing money to the states. But its ability to do that is ending. And therefore, I think more states will follow the pattern of Wyoming and Alaska and uh, declare that uh, they are weary of uh, federal controls and federal ownership. With the money that we have spent making friends, end quote, around the world, just about equals our deficit. Mm-hmm. We could have moved everybody out of the inner cities into the countryside in villages a long time ago. If you fly in a plane across the United States, you, you go for hours 
over empty land. We have an immense confidence. Mm -hmm. And uh, here these people are sequestering land that totally unnecessarily. Well, as you pointed out, most of the population of the United States is within 50 miles of the seacoast. Of, yes. of the seacoast, yes. yes. And they uh, drain the inland areas of their water. So if they were pushed into desalinization, the uh, inland areas would blossom. Yes and be able to hold vast populations. They tell us desalinization, which some island countries use exclusively, is too costly. But uh, my niece's husband helped uh, a friend uh, in Northern California living in one community where they were going to have water rationing this uh, past year, put in a desalinization plant for $10,000, he had a sizable garden, a family orchard, and, uh, sh uh, shrubs, landscaped area. And he is paying uh, for fresh water from his desalinization plant about the same that the city would have charged him had he gone in on their rationing plan whereby he would have been limited to a few gallons a day. He broke the law in doing that. He openly defied them by advertising it in the paper, and they've chosen not to touch him. So he's demonstrated it is not the hyper-expensive thing that they claim it is. It will be if a state or federal agency controls desalinization. But let somebody go into it privately and sell water to people, and it'll be a different story in a hurry. You know, they don't want any public agencies don't want any competition. No. Uh, down in the Bay Area, for instance, if you drill well on private property, you have to have it com plumbed completely separate from the city water system, and you have to hang signs on it that it's non-potable and it can only be used for garden use and so forth, because we went through that during the drought in 70 in the 70s uh, down in uh, Marin County. So they keep a very strict control on uh, water resources. In fact, for a time when Governor Moonbeam was in the saddle in Sacramento, um, he was talking about uh, putting uh, private wells under state control, all yes, water. I recall that vividly. And God preserved us from that by sending us a flood. A flood. <laughs> He needed a flood to get the fellow's attention. <laughs> and to me, the amusing thing was there were floods, uh, there were landslides that closed Highway 99 and 5 going over uh, from Bakersfield uh, on the Ridge Route to Los Angeles. And uh, it was only reluctantly a few months after these things occurred that they finally agreed to dissolve the state commission that had been created to control all private wells. Well, wasn't there kind of a cynical selling job done by the federal government? Uh, I can remember hearing terms like uh, 
preserving <clears throat> the wilderness for posterity for your children and your children's children and uh, that it was sold uh, on the idea that this would be a recreational resource yeah. for the people and then suddenly it's reverted to being a uh, repository or sanctuary for the federal government and they are now proposing to bar people entirely from some of the new wilderness areas. And as Fulton points out in Failure on the Plains, the federal agencies which have oversight have uh, had their examiners say that these public lands are abused by the federal government so that the care is uh, stupid. We saw that in the Yellowstone fire, where federal authorities felt the fire was a natural thing, so let it burn. There are so many conflicting theories within the Forest Service alone as to how land should be managed that each of them are creating havoc with the application of their theories coming close to church fights. <laughs> yes, and it's more bitter. Because they, they are suffused with some sort of spurious virtue. Yes. They really feel that there's, there's a religious element in this. Yes. Which is very strange. Well, you put your finger on a very important point. Uh... It was uh, recently stated by advocates of the homosexual community that homophobia, the view of disdain by the straits, was a violation of the religious liberty of homosexuals. And on First Amendment grounds, we have no right to speak out against homosexuality. Can we throw up? <laughs> Not in a public place, Otto. <laughs> well, I mean, if they're nauseated, you know, if they're nauseous people. <laughs> can always hold that open as an option. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, who's going to mandate this admiration? What government is stupid enough to go down this line? Ours, of course. But what's waiting for it just around the road? Well, you have the same insanity all over the world. They're protected everywhere. Well, our time is very nearly up. Would you, do you have a last comment or two to make about the privatization of federally held lands? Well, I hope it happens or it begins to happen in my lifetime. Uh, but it appears as though the federal government wants to lock up natural resources uh, because I can't see any other, there's no other rational reason for it. We've discussed the irrational reasons, but uh, I tend to think that that's some kind of a smokescreen. It's a Trojan horse, and I think that the real reason behind this is to lock up uh, the natural resources so that they cannot be uh, utilized by private industry or private uh, business interests. Otto? Well, it's resulted in the destruction of the mining industry. Yes. It has ended the creation of new pipelines 
and the creation of new refineries. It's severely, it's, it's reduced our native petroleum industry, which was our largest single industry, is now in partnership with the Arabs in order to survive. Uh, we are paying a very heavy economic price for environmentalism, and it has practically everything to do with the reception that is now moving into a depression. Yes, and we are in treaty with Canada and with Mexico uh, with the expectation of transferring industry to those two countries and turning the United States into some kind of park. However, I think the growing worldwide economic collapse and the fact that the federal government is running out of money will work in our favor. And the forces for privatization will be furthered by the bankruptcy of the federal government. I think we're not too many years behind the Soviet Union where they are now running the printing presses 24 hours a day uh, printing new money. And the only time they stop is when they run out of paper. So they are beginning to pursue the course of Germany in 1923 and are begging us to bail them out of it, which, if we do, will plunge us into the same uh, serious course. But I think the federal government is committing suicide. We're just as bankrupt as they are. Yes. Well, our time is up. Thank you all for listening. Authorized by the Calcedon Foundation. Archived by the Mount Olive Tape Library. Digitized by ChristRules.com.